0: Thank you, Tony, and welcome, dear friends. We are delighted that the Lord has called you here and that you are numbered among the family here at Cornerstone. What a delight and what a treat that is. And I want to encourage you, friends, here at Cornerstone, if you've not had the privilege to get to know these um, these dear brothers and sisters, would you seek them out after the service this morning? Uh, would you introduce yourself? Would you, in in days to come, uh, l- learn a little bit about their story and um, tell them a little bit about uh, your story? Because we are indeed family in the presence of the Lord together. And remarkably, when we open up the scriptures, the interesting piece is that's true. For each of the brothers and, and sisters that we see who have gone before us in the text of the word. Did you know Isaiah is your great, 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 many more greats, grandfather, spiritually speaking. And as we turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, this marvelous uh, text of scripture, he wants to introduce you to, well, your, your elder brother, the Savior, The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look together at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is God's word. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, on this third Sunday of Advent, in this series where we are striving through a variety of voices in the Scriptures to cast our gaze unto Bethlehem and to see this thing which you have done, this wonder to behold, The birth of the Christ child, the Savior and our Lord and King. It is to Him this day we bow our knee. It is to Him that we've come to listen. For He speaks in and through the prophet Isaiah. And we would ask that you would tune our hearts now. To listen through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to the meaningfulness of this, the prophet's words from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we learn about you, O Christ, and what it is that you are called to do. Come and meet with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you were with us last week when we were studying, Uh, Micah chapter 5, you know that this time period that Micah spoke in, in Micah chapter 5, is actually contemporaneous with the prophet Isaiah. They lived at roughly the same time and prophesied in a variety of ways around very similar circumstances. A dark period in the nation of Israel. In fact, in the early part of Isaiah chapter 9, it's referred to as deep darkness that the people of Israel are in, a kind of death-like darkness to interpret it woodenly in the Hebrew. The people of Israel have heard the prophecy of coming destruction. That the nation of, of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will in due time Um, experienced the invasion of this Syrian army. First in the northern kingdom in 722, and then secondly of the southern kingdom in 701. Dark and foreboding is the word that Isaiah has spoken in the preceding chapters leading up to this moment of light, this moment of, of great hope in the text, the text that we've become, well, if you've been here, fairly familiar with. I would imagine you've heard this text in some way, shape, or form read if you've been here at Cornerstone at some point during the Christmas season in every one of our 11 years together, maybe in a reading, maybe in a sermon, maybe in a Lessons and Carol's service. This text we regularly give treatment of because it speaks so clearly, arguably, The most clearly of any of the Old Testament prophets regarding Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. What's interesting, however, about Isaiah's text and maybe why this text in specific is Given such great treatment is how lucid it is, how clear it is regarding the nature and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Isaiah doesn't want to just give us hope. He doesn't want to do it in just um, general or, um, or broad strokes. He wants to give us the very name of the Messiah. That's why we've entitled this sermon, His Name Shall Be Called. That's directly taken out of this section there in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Who is this Isaiah? Well, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, now some of you are reading that and you're saying to yourself, No, no, Isaiah, his name is Jesus. Right, his his name is Jesus. Well, of course, Isaiah wouldn't have known the personal name of Jesus. He wouldn't have known the circumstances of, of Mary and Joseph specifically, even though he will tell us in Isaiah chapter 7 that this virgin will be with child, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so he's clear about some of the particulars, but he wouldn't have known to name them, so to speak, by their first name. But instead, he gives us, well, as a good southern prophet would, four names to describe the particular identity of this Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now what is there in, well, a name? Uh, Just before us we had some dear new brothers and sisters welcomed into Cornerstone and you... You read their, their names and you connected their names and their faces. And I want you to know that there are stories that go behind those names and faces that you would do yourself well to get to know. And there's a story behind the names and the faces that are here in the pages of Isaiah. Specifically this child who is to be born. To talk about this child's name... These descriptions and titles given to us here in Isaiah 9 is to come to know the identity of this child. It is to come to know something of his calling in life and in ministry. and It comes to actually shape our expectations about what this son who is given will actually mean in relationship to us. What is there in a name? Well, there's a lot in a name. Over and over in the Bible, names are significant. Going back to the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and with Eve, the name Adam, simply from the Hebrew word Adama, which means of the ground, the origin of the ground. He is a man made of dust. In some way, knowing the name Adam is knowing the whole story of Adam. Where it is that he's come from, who it is that has made him and breathed life into him. And in some ways, it's a tragic story. It's, well, to dust he was made and to dust he returns. Even the sense of the fall in some sense is ultimately built into the name. Eve, she is the mother of all living. Every human being who has ever existed by human generation has come from the mother of all living. That's what her name means, the name of Eve. The Bible tells us from the very beginning that names are important and Isaiah here wants to introduce you and me to the Messiah and he wants to do so by articulating his name by specifying four particular name descriptions. And we want to take them this morning one by one. And we want to consider them in these two ways. As we look at these names, I want you to consider what does this name say about humankind's deepest need And what does this name say about the fulfillment that Christ brings for the deepest needs of humankind? I want you to think along those two ways with me. What does this name say about humankind's deepest need? And what does this name say about Jesus' meeting or fulfillment of The greatest needs are the deepest needs of humankind. We want to think about it in those two ways as we consider these four names. Look with me at, well, name number one. Wonderful Counselor. The child who is to be born. This son who is given as a gift from the Father to the world. John 3.16. This son, this child is, well, let me put it this way. Your Counselor. You, personally, your counselor. And that's very good news, my friends. Because everyone in here needs needs a counselor. I was uh, remarking just this week to a group of pastors who were talking something about, well, ministry during the holidays, right? Ministry during the holidays is sometimes different than other seasons of the year. And one thing that we've we've experienced across the board is that there's an increase of need for pastoral care during the time of the holidays. More calls come in, more crises tend to happen. And some of the reason for that is that, well, the holidays are very poignant. There are things in our souls that we can kind of keep snuffed down and covered up at normal times of the year, but the holidays just make us, well, take trips down memory lane. Uh, the old traumas and crises of our lives come, come back and they speak louder to our mind and our, and our heart, and sometimes it's hard to bed down those voices, and you, you layer in there the visit of family, and sometimes the challenge of the visits of family, and you've got a recipe for pastoral care is what you have. The Hebrew word translated counselor here is just as you would anticipate it. It's advise, to guide. It means to direct, to plan, to purpose. And what, what Isaiah is trying to say to us is that the Messiah who is coming is someone who comes to speak as a counselor into the life of his people. We are to be a people who are in constant consultation with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is there to help us plan. He is there to help us problem solve, to help us think through our decisions. He's there to help us evaluate the way that we're using our time and our energy and our resources. He's there to direct and to guide our course of action that we might walk according to His purposes. He's there as our Counselor. Now, maybe you've experienced, as, as I, I will just admit to you, I'm prone to this, I'm prone to leaning on my own understanding. I'm prone to thinking that I have what it takes between my two ears and for the thing that's pumping in my chest, I have what it takes for the instincts and the intellect and the wisdom and the know-how and the experience to make it, to, to navigate a path through life. And I've done that on occasion. I've sometimes gone for periods of time where I haven't sought in any way counsel. I've just struck out on my own, going with my my gut, going with my intellect. And let me tell you, friends, it's a recipe for disaster. Plans fail for lack of counsel, according to Proverbs 15, 22. Exhibit A. Plans fail for lack of counsel. But the reality is, all of us have known that. You can go back over the course of your own life where you have You have clearly outlined a path where you know where it is you're going to go. You've mitigated against all potential traps and ditches. And you have what it takes to be able to push whatever it is that you want to do through. And you know what it's like to run up against that wall. You know what it's like to come to that dead end. You know what it's like to have the world have its walls in a very real sense crashing down around you. And what do we do in that moment? Well, many of us are humbled. And after we're humbled, what do we do? We go look for, look for counselors. We look for those who can help. We read the latter half of Proverbs 15, 22. With many advisors, plans succeed. Okay, I need many counselors, we say. And so we go secure a few people to help. We talk to our neighbor. We talk to our mama. We, we talk to our friend. We may even talk to a professional therapist. And we find help. We we find that their words are are a great guide. We we find benefit. Uh, As the scripture has said, with many advisors, plans succeed. But let me tell you, at some point, you will find that even the best of counselors, yes, even mama, will give you bad counsel. I hate to say it, but it will happen. They'll give you bad counsel. They simply... Their directions will simply not pan out. And you know why that's the case? They're only human. They don't know everything. Their wisdom is limited. They don't always know what is needed. I hate to say it, sometimes they don't even really listen. And they still give you advice. Sometimes you say something to them and they jump to a conclusion. Sometimes they hear something you say and they think, oh, I've heard this before, and then they they work through it as if it's all going to be the same, as if there's a canned response that will just fix everything. Sometimes you say something that triggers an emotional response in them and they become self-motivated and they're really playing their own story out while counseling you. Oh, it happens. You know it happens. You've been there. According to Isaiah, there's only one wonderful counselor. There's only one wonderful counselor that you never have to question. You never have to doubt. You never have to worry that he's not listening. You never have to be concerned that he doesn't have all the facts. That he's, that he's not aware of your heart. You never have to worry that he's, he's self-motivated. And he's losing his patience and interest with you. That he's jumping to a conclusion. His counsel is in keeping with His name. It is wonderful. Now the word wonderful, I'm afraid, has fallen on hard times, isn't it? I was in Chattanooga this week for a couple of days with a few pastor friends, thus the earlier comment about talking with pastor friends. All my illustrations today will be about talking with pastor friends. That's not true. But we were enjoying some hot chicken tacos in Chattanooga and I, I asked one of my friends, what do, you, what do you think? I had recommended this place and, and so, you know, so I, I wanted them to answer correctly. It is marvelous. It is amazing. Nate, you are so wise to bring us here. Thank you. And he said, these are wonderful. These are wonderful. Well, I was reading, right, Isaiah 9, 6, and I thought to myself, no, it's not. Not in the way that the Bible speaks of wonderful. I mean, right? We are used to talking about pancakes as wonderful and hot chocolate as wonderful. But the reality is when you look at the Bible, the word wonder is directly tied to miraculous. When we talk about Jesus in the New Testament doing signs and wonders, we're talking about a miracle. We're talking about the supernatural breaking into the natural. We're talking about a personal encounter that changes your life. You see, when Jesus comes with his counsel, the reason it's so rich and profound and deep and penetrating is it's not just, a, it's not just interesting information, it's not just an insight, it is literally transformative. That which he speaks to us is the very word of life itself. You remember how Moses himself when he was standing on the banks of the Red Sea and he seen the sea part and then he'd seen the sea collapse again after the people of Israel had made their way across on dry land and he saw the entirety of the Egyptian army destroyed and he sung there on the banks of the Red Sea. What did he say? Who is a God like you? Who is majestic in holiness and awesome in glorious deeds doing wonders? He is wonder-filling. That's who He is. He fills me full of wonder as I encounter Him, as I listen to Him. His counsel to me is of another world. It is from above, James 3 says, pure and peaceful. It is perfect in every way. The Lord has not come to give us a few life hacks. He's not come to otherwise better your plan for living the American dream. He's come here to broaden your horizon so that the plan for the gloriousness of eternity would unfold in your heart through his words. This means that everything that goes on inside of us and everything that we encounter in the world is to be brought to him. Why is it you don't bring these things to him? Oh, think of it right now. There are are decisions that you need to make. There are all kinds of troubles you have, problems that you need to solve. There are mundane things, there are significant things, there are relational fractures. There are long resentments and bitternesses that you need the Holy Spirit to cut through. There, There are paths that you need to navigate. There are decisions right now that are on your plate that are massive in terms of their consequence. And you have talked to every person under the sun that you trust about it. And you have sat there and you have made pros and cons lists. You have weighed the liabilities and the assets. And you have yet to speak to the counselor. You have yet to speak to the wonderful counselor. Isn't it true? And don't you find that like five minutes with the wonderful counselor was so much better than that cup of tea with the neighbor who went on and on about the gossip in the neighborhood first before we ever even got around to what it is you were talking about. Do you see what this text is meaning to open up for us is that Come to the one who knows your situation better than anyone else. Come to the one who has purposed the end from the beginning. Come to the one who is the wonderful counselor and receive his wonderful counsel. We are those who need to be coming quickly and often into the presence of the wonderful counselor. But now, notice, secondly, mighty God. Now, you could hear in the wonderful counselor piece that this counselor is no ordinary counselor, right? We tied the wonderful into miraculous, into supernatural. And so it's somewhat expectant, isn't it, in the text that we're not dealing with some ordinary human being, are we? No surprise is it that Isaiah tells us, secondly, that he is mighty God. His counsel is wonderful. His supernatural power is at work. Because he is none other than God himself. He is is the majestic one. He is the infinite one. And yet he is the one who as we are reflecting on this advent. Who is a babe in a manger. Who is a little child who was born in the outhouse of an inn. Who is no longer than a span. Which is the space between my elbow and the end of my hand. God contracted to a span. Think about it. This mighty God, this powerful one who has come to earth to, to seek you out and to save you. He has come. He is fully, he's fully God. He's not, don't get this wrong, he, He's not a demigod. He's not, he's not God-like. He's not like great Achilles or Hector. He's, he's not like the, the, the demigods of the Greek pantheon. No, He is 100% God in every way that God is God, He is God. The church regularly got this wrong throughout history. You'll probably remember in the 3rd and 4th century how Arius of Alexandria argued that that Jesus, this, this incarnate one, was similar but not the same as the Father. He was the first and highest created being, but He was not... A part of the, the uncreated. He wasn't a part of, of God himself in terms of the fullness of his, of his being. And you'll remember that Arius was condemned as a heretic in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. In favor of Athanasius' uh, very well-known orthodox statement that, God, uh, that Jesus is God, fully man and fully God in two distinct natures and one person forever. Meaning that in every way that man is man, Jesus was man. And in every way that God is God, Jesus is God. Two natures existing in one person forever. The orthodox statement adopted by the church in the early centuries upheld even today. Isaiah speaks clearly when he says mighty God. This is who he is. This is why his counsel is so wonderful. Look at who it's coming from. Don't we say it that way, right? Right? When something wonderful happens, we say to ourselves, well, look at the source. Something terrible happens, we say, look at the source. Well, look at the source. The wonderful counselor is the mighty God. He's the one with supernatural power. He's the one with wisdom and strength. Uh, Notice the connection that's actually being built here between these two. He's the one who doesn't just give counsel and say, good luck. He's the one who gives counsel that is enduring throughout all of the ages and eternally will be upheld. His purposes will not in any way be thwarted. And he has the power to execute those plans all the way to their end and to their fullness. Oh, that's very different than me. You know, every day I make plans. I bet every day you make plans. There are people I'm going to meet. There are things I am going to do and accomplish. I I love to plan. It's so beautiful when I write it down in a list and on the calendar, I, my heart goes pitter-patter when I see the order of it. And then I get to the end of my day and I look over my list. I look over my calendar and I think to myself, what happened? <laughs> what, ha- what happened to my beautiful day? There were, there were interruptions or well, things took a lot longer than I anticipated them to happen and, and all these things, right? I'm sure this never happens to you, but, but this, is my, this is my existent. And very often as I compare the day planned and the day executed, there's a wide disparity. That's never happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that He has ever planned has been exactly on time and according to His wishes and will. There are no interruptions in the sovereign degree of the Father executed by the Son. He accomplishes every task. Everything that he has planned has perfect resemblance to that which is executed. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God and you can submit your own heart and life to him because his plans are perfect and he will perfectly execute them. Moment by moment, every single day. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. But notice thirdly, he is an everlasting father. Now this is strange, isn't it? Let's be honest. He's the Son, after all. Why do we name Him Everlasting Father? Some are are tripped up by this language, and really, understandably so. It puzzled me for many, many years. I probably don't have to tell you that some have read this text, and over the years have denied the, the Trinity. That classic orthodox doctrine of the Christian church, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three persons and yet one God. It's, some have denied that because they have said, see, look here. This language of everlasting Father is applied to the Son. And so what that means is not that there are three persons, but that there's one God that exists in three modes of being or three expressions. He, he, I was told as a, as a kid, and I, I wish I knew who to thank for this, I was told it, this is the Clark Kent Superman heresy. You know Clark Kent, right? The nerdy journalist who's, who just only needs is a rock to hide behind or a, or a telephone booth. You know what a telephone booth is, don't you? Right. He needs a telephone booth and he gets in that telephone booth and, and nerdy journalist becomes Superman. Same man, two, two expressions. Two ways of being, two, two modes of operation, we, we might say. Well, if, you, if you're sitting here and you're going, yes, that's exactly what I thought about the Trinity. I just want you to know I love you. You are a heretic. <laughs> I say that with love. That's not what Isaiah is saying here. I want you to know that. He's not saying that, that God sometimes shows up as Father, sometimes shows up as Son, sometimes shows up at the Holy Spirit. And, and part of the reason we know this, again, is, is that all three persons of the Trinity show up in the text, don't they? Right at Jesus' baptism, for instance. Right, The Father is speaking from heaven, and Jesus is there, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Well, if He's just one person expressing Himself occasionally in three different ways, He just pulled another hat trick on us. But but maybe He is three persons and one God. Well, yes, He is. That is the orthodox understanding of it. And And what Isaiah is actually telling us here is that the way in which we experience the Father, the way in which we know the Father, the way in which we can understand and experience His fatherly love is through... The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That that Jesus is for us, as it were, one who loves us like unto and in keeping with that of the Father. You know, this is the beauty of who Jesus is, is that He loves us. Well, He loves us, get this He loves us like the Father loves us. How do you experience the love of the Father? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Jesus says, I and the Father are, are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've experienced the love of Christ, you've known what it's like to be loved by the Father. That's what Isaiah is teaching us. We know the Father in and through the revelation of this child. This son who is, who is given. I was just stunned. I mean, last night, I, I was working on, on this, this message. I was sitting in the chair in the living room, and little Lila, our little almost two-year-old baby girl, is crawling around on the floor, uh, messing with my feet and things. And I was, I was distracted by her cuteness. And I was working on, on this point. I was praying, actually, first, and then reflecting on this particular point. And I thought to myself, oh, this is it, isn't it? There is nothing I wouldn't do for this girl. There's nothing I wouldn't do for this girl. I would pour out everything that I am for her. I would lay every single thing on the line for her. I would give up my life for her. And that is exactly the way that you are loved in Christ Jesus by the Father. He loves you like a child. Now now parents in here, conjure the images of your children. They may be next to you. Hug them. The Father loves you like that and giving to you His only Son. And notice it's not occasional. It's not for a season. It's not a moment-by-moment thing. Notice He's everlasting. His care doesn't have an expiration date. You don't have to worry that He's going to change His mind. Do you know how your own joy is so deeply tied up in the direction and the care and the love of your your children? And those of you who don't have children in the midst of the room this morning, think of of those friends, think of those spiritual ones that you've poured into. Think of those disciples that the Lord has given to you. And think of how you take, in the holiest way possible, such great joy. There is nothing sweeter, is there? John tells us, than seeing your children walk with the Lord. There's nothing sweeter than that. Do you know that the everlasting Father loves you and He calls you through His love to walk according to His way and it brings joy in His heart when you do. Do you see, we are adopted into the family of God. We are sons and daughters of our father who is in heaven. And you can see here that Isaiah wants us to know and experience the love that is display the love of the father that's displayed for us in the gift of the son. Did you ever miss did you miss that in John 3:16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who's the god? Who's the reference? There's a particular reference that's in in the God, implied in that? Who's giving the Son? Well, clearly the Father is the one giving the Son. Did you think He was just mean? And that Jesus came just to make Him nice? Some people think that. Oh, don't forget, my friends. It was out of love that He sent the Son. It was in love for you that He gave His most precious gift. What's more precious to you than your children? It's more precious to you than the gift of your children. He gave His only Son in order that we might become adopted sons and daughters of Him. Well, you see what Isaiah is doing, don't you? Isaiah is telling us who Jesus is and what it is that He's done so that our trust will be built in Him. So don't you find that that's happening right now? Don't you? As we're listening to the Lord's Word as His wonderful counsel is coming to us, don't you find that, that something of the peace of the Lord is beginning to take hold of you? Something of the, of the hope of the Lord is beginning to take hold of you? Why is that? Well, if you, if you can trust the one who has planned, wonderful counselor, and he has strength to execute his plans, and he loves you, do you know what that brings you? Peace. And that's exactly where we land, isn't it? The fourth and final name that's given to this child who is to be born is the Prince of Peace. That's who he is. Now, I once heard a sermon by Alistair Begg by the title Prince of Peace. He was actually just talking about that one particular aspect of Isaiah 9-6. Just that one. And I remember him, him saying, he's saying, of all the names, this one has the most curb appeal. I think, I think he's right about that. Like, when you, when you hear these names, just, just test your, your heart. When you hear these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, Yes, that's it. Because all of us are looking, he says, right for peace. We may call it all kinds of names, right? We, we may call it like, you know, looking for a new car, right? We may, we may call it a vacation. We, we, may, we may call it a, a spouse. We may call it all the things, but you know what you're actually looking for? You're looking for peace. Peace is the thing you're looking for underneath everything that you're looking for. It's the, the deeper thread. And the kind of peace that you and I are typically looking for, sadly, is not the peace that, that is actually promised right here in the text, right? I was, you know, that little Lila, she was in my feet. She, well, she started acting up, that little girl. And uh, at some point I'm like, oh, I need to retire to another, another room because I need, I need some peace, right? I need some peace and quiet. Can I find some peace and quiet in this house, right? Not that I ever think that in my home. Only every day, only every day, peace and quiet. That's right. That's what we think. I want a tranquil mind. I want something that I want a. I want a peaceful, easy feeling. That's what I. That's what I want. No, that's not what's here. You know, the word for peace here, as you would guess it, is the word shalom. It's a word that means total well-being. It's a word that that is that is not personal, though it has personal implications. It's a word that's cosmic. It's a word that that speaks to every facet of existence in the cosmos. When When we say we would long to see the Prince of Peace come, we're talking about we would love to see everything in the world as it ought to be. Everything coming to rights. Everything full of truth and beauty and goodness. Everything wrapped in the cloth of righteousness. That's what we would love to see. No more poverty. No more abuse. No more wars. No more grief. No, no more tears. Everything as it ought to be. You know, really that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? When we, we look at the well, the New Testament, when we see this child come, isn't it? The, the angels. When they break into that night sky. And they declare the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's on the tip of their tongues? What's on the opening refrains of their praise? Glory to God in the highest and peace. Peace on earth. That's what's on their, their minds. This shalom. Jesus has brought shalom. Now, I would be... It would be perfectly understandable if you said, Nate, I, I don't, with all due respect, Nate, I, I don't think he has. Like, I, I, I watched the news this morning. Like, I, I saw the wars and rumors of wars. I saw the injustices. I saw the abuse. I saw what's happening in the world. I don't, I don't think, with all respect, I don't think Jesus brought Shalom. Really better stated than Jesus has brought shalom is that he's, he's brought the beginnings of shalom. Do you know really that's what's happening right now in the world is the kingdom of Christ is spreading. It's beginning and you may think to yourself, yes, it's got a long way to go. Yes, it does Sense does feel, doesn't it, that as we look at things, it's got a long way to go. But oh, what a long way it's come. From a few ragtag disciples in the Middle East some 2,000 years ago, would you say that the kingdom of Christ has grown? Would you, would you say that the spread of the reality of the kingdom of Christ has been marked and evident? Yes, is it in some places looking defeated? And yes, in other places is it looking with great success? And shall those places probably shift should the Lord tarry? It might possibly be so. But yes, we have seen a spreading. We have seen a growth of the reality of the kingdom of Christ. Of Christ, and because of it, we've seen the reality, a benchmark, maybe a little bit of a foothold, something of a beachhead of shalom that is happening in our world. And and this is how we know that it's happening. It's, well, it's happening right where we first need it most. Listen to how I said that. It's right where we first need it most. Do you remember how we got in this predicament? into this mess, into this brokenness of the fallen world? Well, just a brief reminder, it was because of Adam and Eve, who are our representatives, by the way, Adam specifically. And that Adam and Eve, who were tempted by the serpent, began to believe against the wonderful counsel of God. They began to doubt His strength and His power, and they wanted it for themselves. They saw Him as a rival, not as a blessing. They began to think that He was holding out of them, not a father who would be willing to sacrifice anything. Did He really tell you that you can't eat of that? You see, He's holding out on you. That's the one tree you really want to taste. Oh, I know He gave you all those, but don't you wonder... What's behind door number one over here? Well, all the power and glory and prosperity that your heart longs for. You see what's happening, don't you? This all happened at the beginning of time when, when the rebellion was afoot in the Garden of Eden. And how did it start? Well, did it start with politics? Some of you are like, it feels like it did. No, it didn't start with politics. It didn't start with business. It didn't start with media. Oh, if we could just fix those things, everything would be okay, right? If we could just get the right people into office. If we could just get the right people into business. If we could just have the right people pulling the strings of media, right? The the problem is, is it runs much deeper than that. You see, the heart of the rebellion is the heart of you and me. It's the heart of you and me. And the heart of the return to Shalom has to go to the source of where the heart of the rebellion began. Do you know that's why when we turn the pages into the New Testament and we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and we see Him resisting, well, political office, We see him resisting um, economic and business opportunities, living in poverty, having even nowhere to lay his head. We see him resisting the spheres of of earthly accoutrement and of power and prestige and reputation. Uh, Why is that? Because he's the prince of a different kingdom. A kingdom that we're described in the New Testament that's not of this world. A kingdom where the powers of this world are useless in the advance of the kingdom that he has come to establish and inaugurate. This this power that he has come to bring is a power that's filled with grace and with truth and with love. It's meant to change us from the inside out. He's not here tweaking on things. He's here overhauling everything from the very center of itself. And it starts with our rebellious hearts. This is why in Luke chapter 17, Jesus, as He speaks to the Pharisees, the Pharisees ask, when is this kingdom going to come? And He says, listen, this kingdom is not like a kingdom that you can say, oh, there it is. Oh, it's over there. Or it's, oh, there it is. It's over there. What does He say in Luke 17? He says, the kingdom of God is within you. It's within you. It's changing you inside. It's taking out a heart of flesh and it's putting in a heart of stone. The kingdom of God is spreading. And of course it happens at the moment of which we first profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of a sudden scales fall from our eyes and we see the world totally different. And we experience what Romans 5, 1 refers to as being justified by faith. Therefore, we have what? Peace with God. Do you know that peace? This peace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what it's like to rest in His identity? To rely on His resources? To listen to His counsel? To receive His fatherly care? To experience the depth of His peace? Do you see if He's... If you're a believer here today, he's already set up that kingdom inside of you. He's already removed the penalty of sin. He's also said that he's dethroned the power of sin in your life. He's dethroned the power of sin in your life. And now the Holy Spirit, doesn't he, he dwells within you. That's, that's the throne of Christ, applying the merits of Christ inside of you, the Holy Spirit. Do you know what he's called to do? He's called to remind you of what Jesus taught. Wonderful counselor. He's called to mediate the powers and the graces that sanctify you. Mighty God. Right? He's called to do the worth of providing and caring for you and comforting you. What's he sound like? He sounds like a father, doesn't he? The work of the Holy Spirit. Applying all of Christ and all of the love of the Father to, to your life. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. His, his job is to indeed put into place the power of the Prince of Peace. You know that word prince, right? We haven't really talked about it. But it's a word of enthronement. It's a word of royalty. It's, it's a word that's, that says this. The one who has been born is meant to be the king. The one who is born is meant to be a king. And don't you know it? Don't you know we need a king like this? And you need a king first in your heart. You know the place that needs it more? More than Washington? More, more than Russia? More than Russia, More than Twitter? More than Facebook. You know know where a king is needed more than anywhere? Your heart and mine. And the hearts of all people across the world. That's where we need the throne room of Jesus. To be most evident. His counsel, His power, His fatherly love, His peace. To be full and complete. Now it could be that even now as we draw to a close that you... Well, you're doing a little inventory of your own life and you see how so many counsels of this world or even your own gut instincts about things have gotten you in quite a predicament, quite a pickle. Uh, you, you you can see, can't you? Can't you see in ways in which you've trusted in your own efforts and powers rather than the power of God? And can you see what a mess it has been? can you do you feel it? it you should feel it? it's called anxiety. It's called stress, it's power of the flesh. It's operating in these these realities. Right? Do you have you have you been do you find yourself just going like I need this, I need I need that, I need I need I need a certain level of fatherly care. And it's means a new car and a new house. The things of the world have taken hold of your heart and you you've been eaten up with them. And consequently, there's not peace, right? Well, you can start today returning to the wonderful Counselor. To this mighty God, to this everlasting Father. And the counsel that He wants you to know today is He's not given up on you. With all your many leavings and all my many leavings, He's a Father at the end who comes out of the house every day looking for the return of the prodigal son and daughter. Wooing you back by his love, letting you know that you are not beyond the stretch of his righteous right hand. That today you can come and relax into the arms of that everlasting Father and you can know something of the fullness of his peace. A peace that's never going to come if you're going to just look to Christmas morning for it, but a peace that would come every morning. If Christ is there with you. By God's grace as we meet with Him. We will know what it is like to meet with Christ. So deeply. And experience the benefits of who He is and the blessings. That when He comes. It won't be so much a surprise. Oh it will be a surprise. But as soon as that initial shock is over. We will say to ourselves. Yes this is the one. The one I've met with my whole life. And now I see him. As I have beheld him for so long by faith. Now I see him. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. My forever Prince of Peace. Father in Heaven. What a beautiful description of your son. What a marvelous word regarding the Savior. Our hearts burn within us as we see the beauty of the Christ child. Lord, we are thankful. That we have the revelation of your word. You are a wonderful counselor. We are thankful for your strength as mighty God. For your care as everlasting Father. Pour into us now this season and always. The peace that comes from the Prince of Peace. That in the midst of a world that will pull and tear. In the midst of hearts that will be prone to wonder. Lord don't we feel it. We will find in the midst of it a peace that surpasses all comprehension. For indeed it guards the heart of those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, make that true of us here. And make that true of more of us across the world. Until the beginning of shalom becomes the end and completion of shalom. Hasten such a day, we pray, in Christ's name, amen.